0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. In our current series, He Made Me Human, Dr. Neufeld continues to look at the biblical account of the flood from yesterday. So let's listen now to this message called God So Loved the World with our text found in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 to
1: 22. Genesis 8 begins with some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. It simply says, but God remembered Noah. Now, taken by themselves, those words sound unremarkable. But if I tell you that on the way home from work today, I remembered that I was supposed to pick up milk from the grocery store, you might think that I have a good memory or that I pay attention to what my wife asked me to do in the morning. And so the words God remembered speak simply about God's good memory. Now, if we think about it, the words God remembered strike us as strange. To remember is to recall something or to bring it to mind because in human experience, we're prone to forgetting. But not so with God. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God knows all things in one simple act of knowing, and by that we mean that God is at all times fully aware of everything. He doesn't have to recall or remember anything, for he is never not thinking of everything. Uh, Think of how we know and remember. Now, I may know that my wife wants me to bring a jug of milk home from work today. I might even remind myself of that several times in the day. But my day is filled with all sorts of other things. And so I may be remembering that I'm supposed to record a radio program today, that I've got to finish my blog today, and and I have a funeral later in the week that I must prepare for, and that I have a very important luncheon meeting. And the list in my day is filled with all sorts of things that I must remember But on the way home, I might be rehearsing all the things I must be prepared to accomplish in the next day and so forth. And as I arrive home and walk through the door, I suddenly realize I didn't remember the milk. But God's not like that. He is fully aware of all things at all times with the same intensity of insight that never wavers. He's fully aware of conditions in far off Alpha Centauri as he is full aware of the spiritual plight of my neighbor next door as he is fully aware of the milk that I'm supposed to pick up on the way home from work. So in a sense, God does not need to remember in the way that any of us needs to remember. God knows all things in one simple act of knowing, and he is aware of all things at all times with a full intensity of insight that never wavers. And so when we come to the line, God remember Noah, we should intuitively realize that this remembering is not like how we remember. And once we recognize that, we should become immediately curious about this phrase and stop and ponder, what can it mean? Now, in order to understand what the words mean, God remembered, we need to find out what remembering means for God first in the book of Genesis and in the rest of our Bible. So let's do a little Bible study, shall we? Let's start with the very next chapter, Genesis 9, 14 to 15, where God says, When I bring clouds over the earth and a bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. So please don't fail to notice that what God remembers is his covenant or the agreement that God has made, which binds his behavior in the direction of Noah. Or then later in Genesis 19:29, we read again of God remembering. And there it says, So it was that God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Again, as in the situation with Noah, the reason God spared Lot when he overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah is that God remembered. And in that context, it means that God remembered that he had made a promise to Abraham regarding Lot. Let's look at some other passages in the rest of the Old Testament. For Samuel 1 verse 19 says, They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Now in this case, Hannah has been to the tabernacle and has pled with God for a child. And the high priest at that time, a man named Eli, has assured her that God will hear her petition and answer her with the word yes. And then later we're told that God remembered his promise to Hannah and she conceived. Let's do one more illustration. This one is taken from Psalm 74, which may have been written when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC. So listen to how the psalm begins. "O God, Why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. I hope you see how this psalm is written. As the psalmist looks at the ruins of the temple, He recounts the promises of God in choosing Israel as his chosen people in the past. And now in a heartbroken cry to God, he pleads, God, remember your promises and fulfill them to your people in the midst of this smoldering ruin of a temple. Now, I hope you noticed in each of these cases, the act of God remembering is directly related either to a formal covenant that God has made or to a direct promise that God has made. To say that God remembers is to say that God keeps his word. To remember is a demonstration that God is faithful to his covenant. To remember is to showcase that when God makes a promise, he cannot then change his mind and act contrary to that which he has promised. When God remembers, he demonstrates that when he has promised, he must Act in keeping with his promise. Go back to my illustration about remembering to get milk and bringing it home after work. See, I might forget because my mind is taken up in other things. So in order to help me remember, my wife might put a sticky note on the glove compartment of my car that says, John, remember the milk. Now, if I see that note and then decide, it's just a bother and don't do it, as you might see, that's a different kind of forgetting. In that case, I would forget to be faithful to the promise I had given her. And that's exactly how it is with God. When he remembers, it's not that he has many things to think about. His remembering is his settled conviction that he will never break his word. When God remembers, he says, once I have promised, I will keep my word. And so when Genesis 8 begins with the words, and God remembered, it means that when wrath was poured out, When God demonstrated his righteousness, showing he will not tolerate human rebellion. In that time, when when God had resolved to express his wrath in such a way to destroy the human race, in that demonstration of the righteous retribution of God, God remembered a promise he had made to Noah. God could be counted on never to break or violate his covenant. Psalm 57 verse 1 says, In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until the storms of destruction pass by. And that is what the ark represented for Noah. The ark was the shadow of God's wing. It was the place of protection when God's wrath of judgment raged through the earth. In the day of judgment, our only protection is found in a covenant with God. And in this is a word of a lesson. See, the New Testament draws a line of parallel between three events, the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the last great judgment that will come upon the earth. Listen to what Jesus taught in Luke 1726 30. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so it will be in the day the Son of Man is revealed. But from what we've learned, we need to always pray, Lord, in that day, when you visit this earth to judge it, remember me as you remembered your servant Noah. Remember the covenant that you have made with me the new covenant that was made in the shed blood of Jesus so that when wrath covers this earth, I will be remembered and I will be preserved. In truth, the words God remembered are the only words of hope that any person can have. God remember those who are in covenant with you. Now, as we go through the rest of this chapter, we're going to see how God not only rescued Noah in the day of wrath, but how God entered into a covenant that goes far beyond Noah and actually extends to the entire human race, regardless of their religious or spiritual conviction. What God does next is being felt today by every single human being on this earth, by every single culture that now exists or has ever existed, and by every single country in the world today. So with that whetting of your appetite, I'm going to ask you, join me after the break as we see what God is doing in the world today.
0: As we continue to study the story of the flood, we're beginning to understand more about God's covenant with man. It is a covenant where he remembers his people, those who trust and believe in him. Just as God remembered Noah and his family, so too he also extends the same grace to us. But this covenant also extends to the whole of the human race today. And we'll learn more about that right after the break. At Back to the Bible Canada, we are so honored when we hear how this ministry is impacting lives and deepening your walk with Christ. One listener wrote, thank you for continuing to spread his word to the world. Your messages are always on point, impactful, and inspiring, true to His Word. May you continue to reach out and give others hope and promise, the hope and promise that only comes from accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. If you've been encouraged, inspired, or moved in any way by a message from this ministry, we'd love to hear about it. To express your encouragement in the form of a gift, simply call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Or to leave your testimony, email info at backtothebible.ca or visit backtothebible.ca and click on Contact. We'd
1: love to hear from you. Reading Genesis 8, 1-5. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. Fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tips of the mountains were seen. Now notice the dates. According to chapter 7, verse 14, rain fell on the earth for 40 days. And now we learn that for 150 days, the water remained somewhat stable. But after the 150 days, the level of flood recedes. The ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, a region that covers an area now a part of eastern Turkey into southern Russia and northern Iran. We're not told in specific where the ark came to rest, only that it was somewhere in that general region. But what is of great interest are the dates. The flood began to abate in the seventh month in biblical terms. If that refers to the religious year, it would be in the Hebrew month of Tishri, which is equivalent to our September to October. But others have argued that since the ancient Israelites had both a religious and a civil year, that the seventh month must refer not to the religious year, but to the civil year. And then the seventh month refers to the month of Aviv, also referred to as the month of Nisan, which happens in our march to April. Since the religious year was not recognized until the celebration of the first Passover, it seems natural then to assume that the seventh month, the month that the ark came to rest on dry land, is in fact the month of Aviv or Nisan, the same month that would later be reckoned as the first month of the year. And if that's right, then the ark came to rest on dry land on the 17th day of the month of Nisan, then we have some amazing parallels in the Bible. The deliverance from the flood happens in the same month that the angel kills Egypt's firstborn and delivers Israel from the Red Sea. and It is also the same month that our Lord Jesus was crucified and suffered under the wrath of the Father for our sins and offered us salvation. You see, we see then an amazing set of parallels in Scripture that this is the month of God's greatest rescues, His greatest deliverances. Well, Let's continue to read. Verses 6 to 14. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Now, we can easily see that on the first five verses are a summary, and now we're supplied with details. Noah's in the ark, and he's trying to ascertain when it's safe to go out. First, he sends a raven, since it's stronger than a more gentle dove, because it can feed on carrion. And then when matters begin to settle, he starts sending a dove, and by the second month, which is equivalent to our October or November, the earth is finally dried out. Now, please notice that according to Genesis 7:11, the flood begins on the 17th day of the second month in the 600th year of Noah's life, and that the flood is completely gone on the 27th day of the second month of Noah's 601st year, which means that the entire flood lasted just over a year. We can only begin to imagine this amazingly long ordeal. Now we come to verses 15 to 19. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife and his son's wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Now, it's important to note that the account of Noah, in many ways, mirrors the account of creation. In the creation account, we're told that the earth was once chaotic, that that waters covered the earth, and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now in the flood, the earth, for a season, returned to its chaotic state. God caused a wind to blow over the waters. The Hebrew word for spirit... And the word for wind are the same word. It's the Hebrew word ruach. So for a period of time, the earth had become so rebellious that God returned it to its original, chaotic, purposeless existence. But here in the account of Noah, man is not recreated, nor are a new set of animals called into existence. Instead, God brings the past broken and fallen and ruined world into the new world. And we're left with an obvious question. If the same fallen humanity are given an opportunity to start all over again, won't the outcome be exactly as it was before? Hatred, murders, arrogance, powerful men building cities, great, strong, and violent men who will eventually rule the earth, and a pattern of murder and violence escalating, and the godly seed eventually again being in danger of being wiped out. I mean, won't this be an endless, horrible, repetitious cycle? But just when we think this must be the case, something unusual happens. Listen to verses 20 to 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled a pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is the second covenant that God makes in the Bible. The first was with Adam, as we saw, when God gave him the authority to rule the earth. But in rebellion, that rule degenerated into violence and bloodshed. But now, after Noah's act of worship, God responds and commits himself to a covenant. God binds himself to a promise, a promise that still stands to this day. While the earth remains, God commits himself never to destroy the entire earth in the way it was destroyed then. Even though the effects of the fall remain, and the human race is driven to evil, God will not strike the earth down as he has once done. What God is doing here, is promising that the conditions that once existed before the flood will not be allowed to become as wicked as they once were. God is making a promise. He is going to find a way to actively restrain human evil. We call this the doctrine of common grace. There is a grace that God extends to the entire human family. Regardless of whether they love him or not, God will intervene, if you will, so that he will not allow conditions on earth to become what they once were before the flood. But how is that possible? How does God ensure that the conditions on earth will not become what they once were? How will God restrain a fallen human race? The answer to that question will be seen in the next several chapters. There, before God calls Abraham, and before God chooses a people to be his own chosen people, God sets into place a series of circumstances that will allow for goodness, decency, and his kindness in a world of fallen humanity. Continue to stay with us through this week and be amazed at what God is doing in the world today and see that in spite of human wickedness, God is determined not to allow the world to become as wicked as it might be. To him be the glory for that.
0: John, thanks for your message today. Uh, you know, it's true that our world is filled with so much evil and and, and and difficult things and difficult experiences. Yet, you know what? God has provided some
1: incredible blessing to us as well. Ought we not focus
0: on that sometimes?
1: I think that is the Noah Covenant. It reminds us that God will never allow things to become as wicked as they could be on their own. See, the great question for all of us is really simple. It's not, why is the world so evil? It's so evil because, you know, we were born into sin. That's why it's evil, folks. But there's so much goodness in this world. There, There's so many examples of mercy. There's so much that gets done— Um, that, that God in His grace is supplying to this world. I think we need to rejoice. God has not allowed this world to be as wicked as could be. God has allowed grace to continue to be here. We can say with confidence, this is my Father's world.
0: I wonder if many of us have truly realized the impact and relevance of the flood upon our lives today. In a sense, It's a real story about justice and the mercy of God, a God who would choose to enter into covenant relationship with sinful people to display His glory and to give us hope and purpose. While the flood displays the terrifying wrath of God, it ends with His promise never again to let the earth become so evil as it was then. What a great study this has been, and I hope you've been encouraged and edified with today's teaching. Be sure to join us tomorrow for more teaching about God's plan for the world as we continue looking at Genesis chapter 1 to 11 with Dr. John Newfeld. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Back to the Bible Canada ministers God's word that we might become a people for his glory. Our teaching reaches individuals and congregations of faith, but homes of faith need God's truth as well. Households are the first places we learn to read scripture, say our prayers, and share the works of God. To help your family's spiritual growth, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway is releasing an exciting new resource titled Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents to help their families grow in their walk with the Lord. Back to the Bible Canada believes these precious times of sharing together spiritually are crucial. So we invite you to request your copy of Four Minutes for Frazzled Families as our free gift to you and your family by visiting backtothebible.ca or just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425.